listening to the Primary Medicine Podcast with Kevin and Dimitri, bringing you the best in primary care CME that you can use in your everyday practice. Hello, so this is Dr. Kevin Milo uh, coming at you for the uh, Primary Medicine Podcast. And I'm, uh, as many of you know, an emergency doctor out in Edmonton, Alberta, but I split some of my time, half my time in Ontario. I've gone all over the place. And with me, of course, is Dimitri. Why don't you say a little something about yourself, like we always do? Yes. Hi, everyone. And uh, my name is Dr. Dimitri. I'm a family doctor, and I work both in Gatineau, Quebec, and in Ottawa, Ontario. also work in Montreal um, doing fertility, and I'm associated with McGill University. So I'm a bit everywhere as well, at least trying to cover the East Coast. Yeah. So today's topic started out as appendicitis and it's going to start with a very personal story so uh, i've got four kids and um i took the older three kids to beauty and the beast if you haven't seen that movie yet it's very good uh, no it's actually it's like it's okay probably you would have rather have seen like you know life for that alien eats everybody on the spaceship kind of thing but this was all right too it was a decent substitution or maybe i would have liked to have seen logan but uh somehow my uh Three young children went out. So I took the older three to the movie theater and my wife kept the baby. And of course, we snuck cans of pop in. I hid them in my coat. I'm starting my children off young at that age, being cheap, just like their father. And one thing you can't sneak in very easily is popcorn. So I actually had to pay $8 for a giant bag of overly buttered, overly salted popcorn, uh, which I ate very little, but uh, my kids loved it. My daughter in particular loved the popcorn so much that she just kept eating and eating, eating. And halfway through, and remember, this is a nine-year-old girl, she asked to leave because her stomach's hurting. And the alarm bells start going off when a nine-year-old girl tries to leave Beauty and the Beast in the theater because she's having abdominal pain. And another couple of hours goes by, and we get through the movie, and we get home, and she's still super sick. and. I'm looking at her, I'm like, where does it hurt you, honey? And she points right at her belly button. Big, nonspecific abdominal pain. No fever, no diarrhea, no sick contacts, none of that. And I started looking at my wife going, honey, I think we're looking at the real deal here. I think we're looking at appendicitis. And my wife's like, it's not appendicitis. She just ate too much popcorn. She'll be better. And I, you know, have the, you know, the little line going on in my head is like, well, honey, when it's an inborn error of metabolism, then I'll ask you about our kid, okay? Because my wife is, uh, some of you might know, is a pediatric neurologist. So super, super subspecialized, but super, super brilliant, you know, MD, PhD, master, postdoc. I'm exceedingly proud of her, exceedingly proud of her. Bottom line is, is that the appendicitis turned out to be a stomach full of popcorn as my daughter puked it up all over the bathroom. And then walks out and goes, yeah, I feel better. And then that was it for what I thought was certainly going to be appendicitis. Nevertheless, that will not be what we cover in today's podcast. We will cover something along the lines, and popcorn's one of the culprits. That's my segue. Hope you all enjoyed it. Yes? Um, uh, yes. I was, that, that's a good segue. I was wondering where this that is going. A, that, was a, that was a very yeah, good Yeah, that segue. was pretty good. That okay. was a damn good segue. So here's the segue. We are actually going to cover airway foreign body events in children. And I actually have a real work case, not a life case, thank God. 
Although that same daughter did once stick a bead in her nose um, when I was in my family medicine residency training. That was a nice night in the Emerge fishing that out. At any rate, what we are actually covering, real, real, not appendicitis, but real, real podcast today is airway foreign bodies in children. As a parent, this is one of the most terrifying things you could imagine thinking about going through with your own child. And as an emergency doctor, or even a primary medicine physician, this is also a very, very scary topic because these people walk in and they look good. These kids often walk in and they look good. So the case for today is a healthy three-year-old boy who is eating edamame beans. Am I saying that right, Dimitri? I'm not sophisticated. Um, edamame. 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 I um, think so, but at any rate, it's that soft-shelled bean, and you know how you just sort of the uncooked ones, you just bite and pull the bean and keep the bean in your mouth through your teeth, and you pull the shell out. Well, anyhow, he was trying to get a whole bunch of these, and some of them popped back in the back of his throat, and it was a witness choking event. His mom said he started choking, and then our triage nurse rushed him into the trauma room because he was stridulous, stridulous. He was striderous. The kid essentially looked really good, was sitting in his mom's arms on the stretcher in the trauma room. Alert, interactive, vital signs were stable and normal. Sats were good. But when you listen closely, he was striderous. And when you auscultate, he was striderous. And whenever he coughed, he was striderous. So we were dealing with an airway emergency. And essentially it was, you know, it is a pediatric uh, airway foreign body. So what are we going to cover today? We're going to cover a little bit of the epidemiology of foreign body events for pediatric airway, the types and locations of airway foreign bodies. Uh, But most importantly, and again, we try to make this relevant, is recognition and diagnosis. We're not here to do a dissertation on the topic and present, you know, every aspect of it. What we want to give you is the practical tools you need to recognize these cases and save lives. We're also going to cover the initial management, but we are not going down the deep rabbit holes of bridged bronchoscopy, surgical, you know, how to sedate them in the OR or anything like that. Obviously, that's not that important, but I'll touch on a little bit of it. So why are pediatric airway foreign bodies so scary? Well, they are a common cause of death in children under the age of five. Kids, if any of you have any of them, have this wonderful knack for crawling all over the floor and putting small objects in their mouths, uh, be it food or toys or you know, rocks or pebbles. They, What is the term? They explore the world with their mouths. Is that it, Dimitri? Do your kids explore That's, the world with their uh, mouths? It's almost like they have like a, a, like a Batman sense or something. They, they just... They zoom into the smallest object in the room and try and put it in their mouth. Yeah, yeah, it's like that. Like, it's like that. And for whatever reason, somehow shiny, jingly toys, like, that holds no interest. But like a a dull rock that looks indistinguishable from the floor, and I can't see it from standing height, somehow my infant daughter manages to find it and try to eat it. So the bottom line is, you know, one, you know, figure that I came across was up to almost 5,000 kids alone died in, in 2013 um, in the U.S. because of foreign body. And many, many children are disabled. My wife had a sad case about two years ago of a little one that choked on a piece of apple and wound up with essentially ischemic brain injury in the pediatric ICU and, you know, very poor neurological outcome that she was consulted on. So these are very, very terrifying. And sort of the peak ages is ages one to three. 
when they're mobile enough to find these little objects and coordinate enough to stick them in their mouths, but not coordinate enough to chew them properly and, or spit them out or not sensible enough not to do it. And again, anyone with kids knows they're not particularly trainable. Here's the last reason why pediatric airways or foreign bodies are so scary in, in kids' airways. So number one, they're common. Number two, they're kids, which terrifies anyone with any sense in their head about medicine. And three, they're very difficult to detect. So in the emergency departments, you know, unless you're really asking about it, or unless you've got a high degree of suspicion when you walk in, very often a child in respiratory distress gets put on as croup, as asthma, as pneumonia, as even something metabolic, you know, where they're acidotic and DKA or something like that, but you didn't think maybe they just swallowed something. In primary care, that kid with a persistent cough, the recurrent pneumonias, that little bit of wheezing that you keep hearing, it's not actually that. It's that they've swallowed something and it's sitting in their, you know, right main and they've got a post-obstructive atelectasis or post-obstructive pneumonia. So these are hard to pick up. And we're going to get into why you can't do the physical exam all that much on them either. So they're hard to rule out. So let's move on. We covered why pediatric areas are so scary, a little bit of the epidemiology behind it. You know, thousands of kids in the U.S. alone die. But what do children ingest? Well, anyone with kids knows this is going to be an easy one, but let's go through the list. Nuts, candy, toys, pills, and the real killers are balloons or God, I don't know who leaves these laying around condoms. And I suppose it's because there's a valve mechanism associated with, with balloons and I'm not even going to repeat condoms. But uh, pills are also scary because there's a secondary toxicologic picture that may start to emerge, right? So depending on what the child ingests, you know, if it's beta blockers or iron pills or something like that, it can get real sick systemically in addition to dealing with foreign body as well as the fact that pills become erosive. So in the esophagus, we all know, you know, batteries, you know, can classically erode, you know, through GI tissues. But remember, if it winds up in a bronchus or a trachea, it's just as bad a picture, if not worse. Where do foreign bodies go? That's the next sort of subheading here. It all really depends on the size and shape of the object and the age of the patient. Uh, but bottom line is for you, the frontline practitioner, it's anywhere from the larynx all the way deep down into the lungs. And the commonest place that things ultimately wind up is the right lung. Because if you go back to your anatomy textbooks or if you look at a lot of chest x-rays, you'll appreciate that the right mainstem bronchus is quite vertical. And so things just tend to fall down there and sit down there. And that goes for aspiration pneumonias and all the rest of it. So let's say... You're in my situation, you know, whether you're working in a clinic, whether you're working in the emergency department, God, whether you're out like at the carnival, you're taking your children to the carnival, somebody, most often somebody's going to tell you, the caregiver's going to tell you, I think they choked. They may not say they definitely choked, but I think they choked, or I don't know where that toy went, right? Their kid was playing, it was like my daughter playing with a bead and near their mouth. And then now it's not there anymore. And I can't find a bead. I don't know where it is. Right. So that's your first stop in saving that child's life is to take that very, very seriously. Caregiver concern for a foreign body ingestion or aspiration is enough to make you stop right there and go, okay, this could be the real deal. The next thing you want to do is 
pay attention to the ones that aren't going to be that obvious to you. So just about every kid I get who comes in with respiratory distress, I always just ask the parents, and again, the yield's low on this, but maybe at some point in my career I'm going to pick it up. Do you think they might have swallowed something? Because it's very tempting in the middle of cold and flu season to be like croup, asthma, croup, asthma, croup, asthma, croup, asthma, or croup bronchiolitis, you know, whatever. Just pick your infectious thing and then forget that there are other things out there that make kids wheezy, have trouble breathing, or cough. And so I always try to take a step back and go, okay, do they really have an infectious picture? Is there really a runny nose, a history of fever, you know, all the rest of it um, that is fitting with what I think is bronchiolitis or croup or asthma or pneumonia. Um, so I try to be really rigorous on that, um, especially when you're busy, right? Because when you're busy, that's when you tend to kind of try to fall into that comfortable pattern recognition and you're going to miss something. So if I don't have a clear like respiratory picture, then I maybe will go ahead and do a chest x-ray or I will sit there and listen for a very long time in their lungs and their upper airway to make sure I'm not dealing with something else. I'll never forget I had a kid that was puking once. This is related, of course, another digression. I had a five-year-old puking, 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 and I phoned the children's hospital, and I said, there's something not right. It's been three days of puking, no UTI, no diarrhea, no fever. And they told me, no, no, it's probably just all GI. And so I very reluctantly sent them home. I said, listen, told the parents, I said, you bring her right back. I'm on tomorrow night. If she's any different, you go even sooner to the hospital. The next night I come on, she looks much sicker, and I went, that's it. You're going to the pediatric hospital. I don't care what they say. I'm sending you an ambulance. But before I did that, I actually did an x-ray of this kid's abdomen. Sure enough, this little five-year-old had swallowed a whole bracelet of magnets. These magnets you link together to form a bracelet. She swallowed them. She had a perfect ring of magnets in her stomach. And she got a laparotomy. So, you know, it's, it's about challenging yourself to think outside the box when everybody, maybe even your specialists, are all telling you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's infectious. Yeah, and the crazy thing about those magnets is, is they're actually really dangerous because they can they can cause ischemia. Yeah, they stick together on the bowel and they can cause perforation. Yeah, apparently that's one of the worst things yeah. you can so, swallow. Yeah, so lots of lots of badness there. And so again, it's it's that being honest with yourself, sort of cognitively challenging yourself to think beyond the horses. Start looking for some zebras out there. So. Let's go through some more of the presentation of airway. And again, this is largely the history, but it can be anything from an acute choking episode and respiratory failure to a respiratory arrest, all the way to chronic indolent symptoms that may not be picked up in the emergency department. May not, it may be something you find on physical exam, like why has this kid been wheezing or coughing for weeks and weeks? Or how come this pneumonia just doesn't go away, right? And so remember that foreign body can cause chronic issues, like I said, post-obstructive atelectasis or post-obstructive pneumonias. And, you know, again, if you're not taking a careful history, you might miss that, right? So, you know, it's not unusual for a choking event to occur. It lasts a few seconds, and then there's a quiescent period. And maybe, you know, a few days goes by or a week goes by, and then the child starts to present with respiratory symptoms. And that's when you have to start to say, okay, what's going on here? And go back and take that careful history. And you find out the child hasn't been unwell with a virus or a fever or anything recently. Chronic foreign body aspiration may present as a cough, wheeze, recurrent pneumonias, uh, persistent finding on chest x-ray. Or, you know, you're, you've trialed some treatment. you trialed a course of antibiotics. you trialed a course of inhalers. And it's not getting better. That's, again, where you're going to pick up the phone and you're going to say, 
listen, I don't have a definite, but I have a maybe. And you're going to talk to your, your consultant. And sometimes it's better to actually phone them directly from, you know, clinic or, or, or you know, or uh, the emergent to say, you know, listen, speak to the pediatric respirologist and say, like, do you think this could be, you know, something that should be followed up on and, and get their thoughts on it. So number one, you're going to take a focused history, but you're going to remember that foreign body aspiration can be a somewhat vague or nebulous presentation. Number two, physical examination. And I cannot stress this enough. Don't overdo it. If you didn't touch the child at all, you might be saving their lives. So in the case of this three-year-old that I had, he was striderous. And what was scary is it was coming from his upper airway. So he was sitting there, comfortable, looked good. But anytime you agitated him, anytime he coughed, you could hear foreign body obstructing his upper airway and his larynx. So I stayed very far away from him. I made sure he was very comfortable before I got close. And I listened very gently, all while he was sitting in his mother's arms. Okay. And this is what makes foreign bodies so tricky because all you can really do as a primary care physician or frontline, you know, ER doctor is suspect them short of them having total collapse and you have to act and intubate on them or you're doing the Heimlich, which we'll get to all of that. But short of like actively resuscitating the child and outflies something or you intubate them and you're pushing a foreign body down into the right main bronch, bronchus, you really can't examine a child and be like, oh yeah, mom, that thing you thought your child choked on? Nope, they're perfectly fine. No worries. Off you go. You really cannot do that. So again, here's what I stress. Don't touch the child if you think you're going to set them off. Don't look in their mouths. Watch from a distance. See whether they're altered, whether they're appropriate, if they're restless, they're agitated. Look at their work of breathing. Look at whether they're pooing secretions. You know, get mom to gently undress, okay? Maybe get mom to hold the stethoscope against their chest while you listen, right, in a very safe, disarming manner. But if you can't get in there to examine the child because you're worried about setting off their airway, then just leave it at that and pick up the phone and call for help. So let's go through management, and I'll just describe them in terms of action. So number one is recognition of how serious this is, right? So yeah, I get it. The kid looks good. Sats are good. They're comfortable seeing him as arms. At any minute, that child could obstruct and you could be dealing with an imminent death if you don't act. So start being prepared for BLS maneuvers. So that includes having yourself ready to perform BLS maneuvers, such as the Heimlich or an infant's the back blows. And again, I'm not going to go into all of that. Just have a look, update yourself on your local recess um, guidelines, but have not only yourself ready to perform those, but somebody else ready to perform those as well. Let the parents know that things could go south very quickly, right? So in this case with this kid that we had in my department, I actually went with the, the mother in the ambulance and the child. The child sat on mom's lap and I just calmly told mom I'm going to ride. And, you know, if something happens, we hit a bad bump and the child obstructs, you're going to see me and the paramedic act very, very quickly to uh, resuscitate the child. So having a second person available and having the parents in the know so that they don't freak out when all of a sudden you're doing Heimlich or you're doing back blows on their baby, but keep them calm. Continuous bedside clinical monitoring. So I'd say the child definitely needs to be in a place where they can be watched. So if they walked into clinic, right, or they walked into the eMERGE, get them into the sort of the best place that you can monitor them at. Nobody should be leaving their side. Ideally, at least a SAT probe on them. 
If they're tolerating other monitors, that's fine. But again, that's not going to be vital so much as just looking at them and seeing whether they're in distress or not. And then pick up the phone immediately and call for help. So we're very thank, we're very lucky. Um, we have an excellent PICU or pediatric ICU transport team who can usually come out. In this case, they recommended I just go in the ambulance with the patient because of the short transport times. But call people and call 911. If you're in clinic, call 911. Tell them you need an advanced life support crew, ALS crew, and have them come in. Do not send these child in private vehicle. Sometimes very tempting. You say, okay, the child's calm. They'll go with their parent. Honestly. They obstruct in the back of the parent's car. It's over. You can consider getting a portable chest x-ray if you're in the emergency department. I, again, utility is very limited on this. Most things that are swallowed acutely are not radio-opaque. Many things that are swallowed are either very small or they're organic and they're not going to show up. Or even if it's there, guess what? What are you going to do about it, right? So... I didn't get a chest x-ray in that case because I knew that the kid needed to be at the children's hospital where they can decide on chest x-ray versus just taking straight to the OR. So that's step three is just getting everything running smoothly. Talk to the parents, keep them calm, keep the child calm, have somebody in the room who's prepared to do BLS maneuvers if the child obstructs and then get help stat. Okay, but don't, and please, please don't monkey around with IVs and things. Um, unless, you know, you've got an older child who understands what's going on or you're, this child is decompensating in front of you. Okay. In which case you're probably not looking at IVs. You're probably looking at IO, um, access or I, um, you know, ketamine or something crazy like that. So step four is do not make things worse. So do not, as I alluded to agitate, upset the child, start IVs. Don't constantly be poking and prodding them. Don't try to stick things in the back of their throat and look. If the child is stable, and again, there's some obvious stable children like mine versus some obviously unstable ones that are, you know, blue and not ventilating to somewhere in between. But if the child is stable, just keep them that way. Don't try to manage their airway. Now, for those of you listening and you're many hundreds of kilometers away from a larger hospital with a pediatric anesthesiologist or, you know, a pediatric ENT surgeon, okay, it might be a different picture for you. I would still strongly advise getting on the phone with your PICU team and getting them to talk you through. Like get on the phone with a pediatric ICU doctor or pediatric anesthesiologist, whatever specialist can help you out, get them to talk you through all of the steps for intubating and managing this child. If time allows, if time doesn't allow, we can talk about that in a little bit in the next step. Okay. Um, yeah. So if the child fully obstructs or goes into respiratory distress, start your BLS maneuvers. Okay. Um, if you get the sensor still in uh, ventilating, maybe just leave them at that. But if they fully obstruct, you're into back blows or Heimlich maneuvers. Okay. And again, I'm not going to go through all of that and make sure you have help on hand. So somebody else in the clinic, another doctor, or a nurse, if you're in the emergency department, that's your respiratory therapist, nursing, another physician in the room, you know, ambulance crew, whoever you can, whoever's going to be there to help, get them to help out. Okay. But while BLS maneuvers are being done, if you're in the emergency department, you should, if you didn't already have it done, be getting set up for an advanced airway. And I'll make a couple of general notes around here. 
I'm not going to get into all the specifics because this is not an airway course. And there are many enthusiasts out there in the world of the internet who will tell you a million different things about what to do. But I'll give you some general principles. Be cautious using any kind of paralytic agents because those have the potential to take away any airway protection, residual airway protection the child might have had. You'll lose. And if you fail at your airway, the child's not going to try to ventilate past that foreign body. They're just going to be paralyzed. If it's an upper airway foreign body, consider an incisional or needle cricothyrotomy to bypass the obstruction, which I've heard of people doing. So if you know it's right up there, trying to intubate by pushing it further is probably counterproductive because it might just get lodged right in the middle of the trachea. Where your further head is, if you get the sense that it's higher than your landmark for your crike, then maybe just do your crike and just bypass it that way. Because the key here is just to ventilate them until you can get them into an OR. In the event that you know, you're looking at a tracheal foreign body, or it's sitting right at the carina uh, as you're intubating the patient, be prepared to use a rigid bougie to actually force the foreign body into the left or right main stem bronchus, in which case you're going to be able to ventilate the contralateral bronchus. Okay, and again, the goal is here not to get perfect, but just to get to a situation where you can literally get that sat about 90% and keep it there until the child can be delivered to the operating room. Those are my general notes around airway management. The bottom line is you really don't want to be at that point. Ideally, you should be, you know, if you're catching this early and recognizing it, you know, hopefully you're able to get an, uh, an ambulance crew there or get the child transported to definitive center. And so what happened with this little kid that I had was he, um, we safely got him to the, from our emergency department to the next emergency department, which was the children's hospital, uh, where this little fellow was actually taken to the OR done under a general anesthetic and sure enough they fished out a couple of here it goes Dimitri you may have to save me on this edamame beans edamame edamame beans from his upper airway and that was again a very close call um, with the little guy so that wraps it up let me let me go through it here and, and just summarize number one foreign bodies are very common whether you are at the carnival with your children they might walk into your clinic because they look good uh, or they'll come through your merge. They're common, they're scary, and they can go flip on a dime. Uh, number two, it's all about a very careful history for either an acute or chronic foreign body event. Number three, don't make things worse with the physical examination. Don't be super invasive. Don't be super proddy, proby, agitating the child. Don't do any of this, oh, let's hold them down, see if we can fish it out kind of thing. Don't do that stuff. And uh, number four, call for help. So get on the phone with your team and be prepared to do your BLS maneuvers. Keep the caregiver calm and uh, get get transport arranged very quickly for this child. And then lastly, if the child goes into you know respiratory uh, rest and is not ventilating, get right to your BLS maneuvers and um, uh, prepare for advanced airway management. That is it. It's late at night. I just finished dealing with my daughter's appendicitis scare, and I am going to wrap up what has been a lengthy podcast. Uh, any last thoughts or questions at all, Dimitri? No, it's it's uh, quite chilling because you know I have I have young kids, and um, I think I think as a family doctor, the most important one of the most important things you said is to take the parents seriously when they tell you, "Well, I'm yeah. not sure, but I think they might have fallen something," because yeah. things get bad fast, and they'll come to your clinic. That's a problem. They'll come to your clinic. That, that's, sometimes. This is why I prepare, and this is why this podcast is so important, and why we emphasize the emerge aspects. Because I'm always shocked 
by what gets sent in from clinic. And I have nothing but respect for the family doctors out there who are the front lines dealing with people that walk in with all sorts of these sorts of uh, complaints, whether it's, you know, ischemic heart disease, you know, whether it's COPD that should be, you know, <laughs> bypassed. I'm always shocked what walks into family medicine clinics and then probably gets sent to us. And um, so it's really about you guys on the front lines like that, recognizing it and learning at least the first couple of steps of management in order to save that patient's life. And yes, as a parent, it is terrifying. All right. Well, good night to all. On that happy note, on that happy note, we are going to wrap it up. I'm going to go hug my kids. Yeah, I got it. Take care.